0: through their music out of the box with Joey Watson on
1: FBI 94.5 Hello FBI radio listener another week another out of the box live on your radio streaming online and at your podcast app wherever you get those podcasts every Thursday from midday to 1 I have the immense pleasure of sitting down with one guest and rolling through the records from their life and the stories which have to define them Today, I'm sitting down with writer and thinker Ruby Hamad. Her bread and butter is tackling big issues like identity and intersectionality, and it's no surprise that, as the daughter of Syrian-Lebanese refugees, Ruby has experienced the breadth of what it means to belong to a marginalised group in Australian society. She's resisted cultural expectations from her family, discrimination in the workplace, and the othering that Australia often dishes out to migrant groups, particularly as she makes very clear in her first book to Muslim women and women of colour. The book is called White Tears, Brown Scars. It asks the question, what happens when racism and sexism collide? It's pissed off a lot of people but relieved others who say they're finally seeing their experience represented for the first time. Ruby, with that, a warm welcome to Out of the Box.
2: Thank you, Joey. Thanks so much for having me. Very
1: happy to have you. Um, Ruby, this starts um, 2018 when you write an article in The Guardian Australia. Mm -hmm. It's titled, How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Colour. Uh, And it's become a kind of milestone in your career as a writer and a thinker, and and, and the book's genesis in some way is owed to that article. What did you discuss in that piece, firstly?
2: So... What, what that what that piece was uh, about was something that I was starting to piece together with my interactions with friends who are white or were white, friends and colleagues. Um, and oh. it's a question formulating in my head. I'm like, why is it lately, like, every time I try to talk to a white woman about something that either she's done that's upset me or... But, or or even just a disagreement, I kind of end up having to back down and apologise to her. We always end up talking about her feelings, uh, even though I'm the one who's actually got the problem. Uh, And it was kind of, it was starting to get quite like, maybe I, I, it's been, well, it has been happening, you know, obviously obviously all my life, but I think I was going through a period where it just happened many times in a short amount of time where I kind of really saw the pattern. Uh, And then... It's just sort of, you know, serendipity in some ways because I, I looked, I was on, on Twitter and I saw a thread by a black feminist uh, in Canada, I think, Canada or or the US. And she was talking, uh, you know, she was had this thread and saying, you know, every black woman I know has a story of trying to talk to a white female colleague and the female colleague ends up crying and she's not crying because she feels bad she's crying because she feels she's been attacked and it's like oh my goodness like this is what's ha- this is this is it uh this is what i'm talking about and so i you know i'm not black um so i thought is is how many different like does this apply to all women of color like and, and so i shared it on facebook and the response and i asked brown and black women does this happen to you this overwhelming response.
1: Um, I, I might just um, read a quick excerpt of it now just to sure. kind of get a sense of the guts of it. You say, as I look back over my adult life, a pattern emerges. Often when I have attempted to speak to or confront a white woman about something she has said or done that has impacted me adversely, I am met with tearful deniers and indignant accusations that I am hurting her. My confidence uh, diminished and second-guessing myself, I either flared up in frustration and not being heard, which only seems to prove her point, or I back down immediately, apologizing and concerned the very person causing harm. I mean, obviously, you're responding to a lifetime of experience. Mm. Then. You mentioned that in general terms. Was there a particular thing that happened, a particular incident that triggered you to write this piece then mm-hmm. at that point in life?
2: Yeah, and I discussed that in the, in the book. Um, and it was an online interaction with a friend, and it was about Syria. Um, and I say in the book I don't like to talk about Syria much at all because it's just one of those topics where you just can't have a – you can't actually have a uh, a reasonable discussion anymore. There's just too much anger and uh, on each side, so I've just stopped talking about it. Um, uh, but it, it, in any case, I all I, I she exp- uh, expressed on on Facebook uh, support for for some strikes from the US, and I just said this this is a bit disappointing for me. Like I know you really care about Syrian civilians, but you know we're kind of really scared now that this is going to just escalate the conflict even more, if that, if it's possible, but it was, you know, it was quite a frightening time. And the response was just, how do you think you are? Why are you talking to me like this? I don't deserve this abuse. And I'm like it's like, how am I abusing you? I'm just like, you know, I'm just saying, I I just don't understand why you would support this. And but please, you know, try not to let your feelings get in, in the way of, of this because, you know, the Syrian war isn't about you. Uh, and she's like, well, you no, know, this is you making the Syrian war about you. And I'm like, well, I mean, in a way it kind of is because I literally have family there and that's why I'm having this discussion. But it just didn't, you know, people sort of jumped into the threat to support her and say, you know, why are you, you know, why are you demonising, Liz? I'm like, I'm not. Like, what's happening? I couldn't understand. I was like, what the hell? Like, it was really just like, oh, my goodness. And this is just an online interaction with a, you know, friend who I met online. But we sort of developed a friendship. We spoke on the phone and, and stuff. So it was just, it was the suddenness of it. Like, there was just, it just came from nowhere. It was just, and so vicious. And, and it was, it was, it was, obvi- like, it was just designed to, ju- well, I mean, I never know, I'm not saying that, that, they plan these things I'm pretty sure that it was just a sort of an internal response from her an immediate response uh, uh, um, and yeah but the way it just panned out is I just never got to put my point of view because I was immediately cast uh, as as an aggressive bully uh, just by literally saying I you know I I know you care about Syrian civilians, but it makes me really you know it's really disappointing for me that you to support this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. And, and so that kind of, for days afterwards, I was like, what? like how what is this? You know, this is like that time and that time and that time and that time. Why does it always always end up like this? And that that's kind of what led to it.
1: What was the reaction to the article? What was the reaction to you expressing Ooh, those concerns?
2: You know, I mean, like the the response was. The, the, the backlash was overwhelming, but so was the support. Um, and I don't think I've ever quite experienced it on that level before, because it did go viral globally. I um, you know, I got to the point where even like, you know, Jordan Peterson and Majid Nawaz had something to say <laughs> about it, you know, just like one little article written, you know, for the Guardian Australia. And and I, I knew that it would I knew it would ruffle feathers, but I thought it would stay confined to Australia and mostly just confined to sort of the feminist space where they were kind of starting to get a bit familiar with these, you know, things like white tears and and, and white feminism. So I I just wasn't expecting that. But it was the support that really overwhelmed me because uh, coming from overseas, from, you know, Latina women, black women in America, Native um, American women, as well as, you know, Indigenous women, Australian women of colour here, it was just this response of thank you. We've all known this for a long time, but some, you know, because th- you happen to write it in this particular space, it, it's, it, it, uh, you know, it exploded it into the mainstream consciousness. Uh,
1: a while later, you get a Twitter, Twitter message mm-hmm. from an African-American television journalist mm-hmm. in Kansas City. What, what did she say?
2: Yeah. So I got this message saying, um, uh, this was a few months later, I'd already started research in the book at that point, but but a few months later, just saying she wants to talk to me about the article. And I just thought, oh, okay, this is, um she just wants an interview because that did happen uh, as well. And so I was like, okay, but, uh, you know, sure. I, I wasn't sure if it was good or bad interview, you know, so I was like, okay, sure, here's my email. And then what she said in the email was that she'd shared my article and lost her job. And I was like... <laughs> like she, she lost she her job lost, for well, sharing Well, She shared the article. Sorry, I should get a bit more detail. She she shared the article on her Facebook page. She's a she's a television journalist in Kansas City. Uh, she shared the article on her private Facebook page. Two co-workers saw it um, and said, uh, so white female co-workers and said that she they felt offended and that she was creating a hostile work environment based on race and gender. And so she got called into HR, um, she got got suspended and then two two days later terminated. Now, there there is backstory to her story in that she'd been working for this station for 14 years and she'd, um, the the year before, had filed a racial discrimination lawsuit. So there was, she was already, you know, being a quote unquote problem. Um, So... They terminated her contract and... But
1: her sharing of your article that you'd written in Sydney, posted on The Guardian in the Australia... United States, yeah. ...led to her contract being terminated, an award-winning journalist.
2: An Emmy Award, yes. Yeah, she won an Emmy Award for her coverage of the Obama inauguration. So how's that for, like, you know, uh, layers and layers of irony. What, what um, does that say?
1: What uh, for you what what's what what's the lesson in that? I mean, you talk about it a bit in the book.
2: Yeah, I talk about in the well, for me the lesson is well my my first feeling was oh my god, what have I done? I've ruined this woman's life, right? But uh, over over the, you know, over time, um, the lesson for me is how important it is uh that We collectivize as women of color and people of color, like all people of color, because our stories aren't all the same, our experiences aren't all the same, and we don't, our oppression, the marginalization isn't all the same. But it's in the common threads that we can get stronger together. Because I wrote that piece about what had happened to me, and then I was seeing other women talk about it as well. Um, and then, you know, on the other side of the world, an, an American, you know, black American woman shared it, lost her job, but in the end she took them to court and she won, like, so that is what I mean. Like, And, and you know, she said something to me a few months ago after the end of the, her trial, and she was like, if it wasn't for your article, I would have just been another black woman that filed a racial discrimination lawsuit and lost. So that gave her some a, a partial victory.
1: Well what can we play to that ruby? What can we play off the top?
2: Okay, so uh my first song is from St Kilda to King's Cross, uh Paul Kelly. Uh what I love about this song, Paul Kelly in, in general, this song in particular is it's a very a, a very minimalist style of storytelling where he, he it's almost mundane to start with, um you know, describing you know, on going on the bus from from, from one capital to to another. But what's really happening is is what's inside him. You can see that he's at this major point of transformation, I think, in his life. Something big has shifted and he gives these clues about, I don't know, there's that line, all around me is like all inside me and my body left me. Um, so in a way, it's, it's, it's kind of like similar to, to what this article did, did for me. I, I didn't see it coming, but it's completely shifted. Um, my life and my and my work and it's you know just sort of jumped out at me over nowhere and 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 so this song is kind of it's a testament to how we can transform even like when when things are seeming at at their lowest I think. (laughs)
0: It's 13 hours on a bus. I pressed my face against the glass and watched the white lines rushing past. And all around me felt like all inside me. And my body left me and my soul went running. Have you ever seen King's cross when the rain is falling south? Came in on the evening bus From Oxford Street I cut across. And if the rain don't fall too high, everything shines just like a postcard. Everything goes on just the same. Fair weather friends, are the nearest friends. Mouth well shut I last and open Bounties have I give you all Of silly Harbor All that land and all That water for That one sweet ground
1: There you go! Isn't it wonderful to hear Paul Kelly on your FBI Radio at 94.5? The show is out of the box, and that song, that classic from St Kilda to Kings Cross, was brought in by writer uh, Ruby Hamad. Her uh, her book, her, her first book, uh, White Tears, Brown Scars, has has just been published recently by Melbourne University Press. You can cop that at your local seller of literature. Ruby, what do you know about the life of your family before they were forced to migrate to Australia in in the nineteen eighties?
2: Uh, I, I, you can imagine the life their life in Northern Lebanon in the in the seventies was going to be much different to here or to what they experienced. Um, you know, which is not to say it was completely you know alien. There, there was a lot of political activity in in the Middle East at that time. My father was a, a trade unionist so he was involved in you know in, in, in politics and in organisation and there was a reluctance. They, they didn't, my dad in particular didn't want to leave. Um, he really was hoping the war would settle down and when it became obvious that it would not northern Lebanon where, where we were in particular uh, was hit very hard and um you know people were disappearing around us people were dying and you know my mum's like right you know you got four kids um at this point there was four four when it started and, and then, then by the time I came around it was six kids you have to kind of get us out of there so uh my brother my father's sister was living here with her husband and so she was able to sponsor our family um on a refugee visa to come here so so we we'll- very fortunate in that respect.
1: What what did the migration story mean for the sort of childhood and upbringing that you had in Australia?
2: Well, I mean, it it was really difficult on my parents, which I can appreciate looking back as as an adult. You don't appreciate it so much as a child um, because it was this completely, you know, this, this complete culture shock. So... They were still trying to raise us as they would if they were still in Lebanon, um, without uh, and they weren't really, I guess, comprehending all of the external messages that we were getting of of, of living, you know, living in this country with a whole different um, language, a whole different history, and you know, I guess, way of life, quote unquote. And so there was quite. Um, you know not not in my early years uh, it was more as, as I got into my teenage years uh, you know there was a lot of tension between me trying to sort of um, establish my independence and assert my autonomy and my parents really just trying to keep the tradition and the family and that sort of that collective spirit of of you know the group is is bigger than the individual kind of going.
1: Uh, identity has become, in some way, the focus of your writing. It's interesting to reflect mm. on your parents creating the collective. You disagree?
2: Yes and no. I mean, I write. I I, I really do write about racism and race as a sort of a, a structure and a system. Um, which is not. Which is not to say it's that identity doesn't come into it. But but as I, I know, I say at one point in the book. Um, you know, identity may be how we see ourselves, but race and racism is how others see us regardless.
1: Okay, well, if we look at race and racism as a structure, and then I can yeah. um, ask this question in a different way. Sure. Um, was that already reflected to you as a child? What's that? The Well, um, racism. if we say race and yeah. racism as a structure.
2: Um, yeah, well, yeah. I mean... How so? Well, because there was... There was baggage with being Arab even then. Um, and by the reason I say even then, I mean because this is well before nine eleven, and But there was still, because of, you know, things like the, the fatwa that the Ayatollah, um, you know, issued on, on, on Salman Rushdie, because of... Um, the Lebanese Civil War indeed and because of terrorism and the occupation in Palestine Um, so that violence and and that terrorism was sort of transferred onto all Arabs Um, so there was already a a, um, you know there was was a lot of internalization of messages of Arabs being bad of Arabs being um, aggressive and violent and not really belonging.
1: How did that play out for you? How was that shown to you when Um, you were little?
2: Okay, so, you know, my earlier years, it was shown through ridicule of um, the Arab language, you know, so so people making fun of them, just like, oh, Arab, you know, so, sort of stressing that it, it was different. Um, you know, I mean, I was called a terrorist from as far back as, as, as 13 years old, um, which was in the late 90s. Um, so, uh, sorry, in the late 80s. Uh, so, this is well, well before, you know, uh, 9 11 and Bin Laden. So, there was, that was already there. Um, and then there was just more the general sort of racism of being, being different and not wanting to be different and trying to, to sort of minimize the difference so that, so that you can fit in. Did you internalize that? Uh, absolutely. Like, no. I, I hated. I started to hate being Arabic. I hated my name. I hated speaking the language. Um, and I was really starting to reject that. Uh,
1: this became particularly pertinent when you mm. made a decision to study a language yeah. that <laughs> played out with your father when you were 14. Can you tell me about that? Yeah.
2: So, you know, I was in year nine and they're like, okay, you guys get to choose an elective. It was like either art or language or something. So I chose, I chose Italian. And I just thought, cool, like I get to do another language. I was at that point still studying, you know, Arabic in Saturday school. But Arabic's a very difficult language, even when you grow up with it, right, to to learn formally. So I was, I was struggling with it. And my father knew I was struggling with it. So he obviously would have wanted me to do Arabic at school as well, uh, regular schools to kind of fortify it and strengthen it. But I was like, oh, I want to do something different, <laughs> you know. Um, and so he was very upset. And he's like, I don't understand, like. You know, Italian's fine, but you're not Italian. Don't you want to learn your own family's language? Don't you? Isn't that important, you know? And I was just kind of like, no, you know, it wasn't to me then. And I would seriously regret it now. I would give anything to, to, to be, you know, completely fluent in, in the language and reading and writing it, but but I'm not. I'm trying, though. Um, yeah, so, so it was very upsetting for him. And I think it, it kind of seems like a small incident, but I think for him it was really... Um, Emblematic of the fact that his children were not going to grow up to be what he imagined and wanted. How did your parents'
1: approach to parenting you change when you started to become a teenager?
2: Mm. Well, what, what what I remember is is as a child, I was um, me and my younger brother were always hanging out together. So we were playing cricket in the street or climbing the trees and rooftop at the school, the, you know, our, uh, our primary school. And my parents were fine with it. And we'd be out at the park until, like, sunset in the summer, you know, so, like, 8 o'clock. And, yeah, there, there was no real differentiation made between us as very young. But then as I started to get a bit older and puberty was hitting, then they started to get strict on me and not on my brother. And it was really difficult. It was what really do you mean
1: difficult. by stricter? What would Well,
2: they- the... Um, uh, you can't stay out, you know, as late, you know, come back home directly after school. Um, no, you can't, you know, go to the park and play cricket with all the guys and, and you know, so there was just, um, there was that and then there was also uh, more responsibilities for me in the house and, you know, like, okay, you have to start housework, so make the beds and vacuum and my brothers didn't have to do any of that so there was that real sort of you start to see the split between between the genders at that age where it was just kind of expected that the girls would start to make the home their priority
1: we'll leave that as a tantalizing cliffhanger in the story because it's time to go to another song (laughs) what what can we play to your, your childhood and your your teenage years growing up in australia ruby
2: okay so I chose this song because it really, it it kind of gives an insight into the kind of child I was. I was was really quite serious and I was quite, um, I was already thinking a lot. I was already living inside my my head. And one thing I was um, often thinking about was nostalgia and ageing and not in the sense of being afraid of it, but in the sense of, of... Looking back and and feeling kind of wistful for the past when I was already I was like you know twelve thirteen years old, uh, and so this song is is Veronica by Elvis Costello, um, which is I love because of what I just said. It it is a song about um, uh, well well it's a song that he wrote it about his his grandmother who had dementia, um, and so her final years of of losing who she was. Um, but he wasn't sure if she really did, or if it was still inside her. Gee, that, but we just couldn't access it anymore because we don't really understand how Alzheimer's works. And the other reason I love it is because it's um, it's one of those. It's got a. It's quite a sad, a tragic song in, in many ways, but it's got a really great happy beat. So I, I kind of like that dissonance between the the mood of the song and its actual you know,
0: content. It's love i
1: By Elvis Costello. Thank you very much to Ruby Hamad for bringing that particular track in today. She is my guest on this show. Out of the box, we are rolling through her stories and her records. Her book, uh, White Tears, Brown Scars, has just been published by Melbourne University Press. Ruby, how how would your relationship uh, with your mother? developed over your teenage years if you don't mind me going Mm. slightly psychotherapeutic
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking about my family more than I ever have publicly um look it's hard because I look back on it now and I'm it's different when you look back I I, I'm much more sympathetic to my my parents position and, and perspective now than I was at the time at the time I was I was I struggle with it a lot, so I, I had a lot of resentment. It, it didn't—I didn't show it though, and I think that's something that kind of shocked my parents um, when I was a bit older. In that, ever, ever from when I was about twelve, thirteen, I was already—they were kind of already losing me, if you like—because I never showed it. I, I still sort of played the, the on the outside, the dutiful daughter, did what I was told. Sometimes I'd be like, "No, I don't want to do that," but overall, I was pretty, pretty um, sort of passive. Um, But internally, I was just like, okay, I I can't do anything about my situation now. But I know that as soon as I'm old enough, I I have to leave. I can't live like this because, you know, I know they're my parents. I love them. But I want my own life. I don't don't want to sort of be focused on trying to find a husband and making sure he's a good, you know, boy from the community. I, I just want to live my life on travel. I want to do what I want to do and just be in control of my life.
1: So, how did you do that? What What did you do when you were nineteen?
2: Oh my goodness! I went. No, I left for uni one day and didn't go back. Um, so, and this was not something Arab girls. It's it's a it's a little more common now for Arab girls to 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 leave home before marriage. Um, you know, for first generation. You know, my, my so like it was all new. Um, when this happened in the 90s and and it just wasn't really done um and if it was done it was done to elope with a guy um that wasn't approved but there was no guy for me like that wasn't because of a guy that I left um so what I did was every time for, for a few weeks beforehand every time I left for uni I'd take a, like a plastic bag with me of my stuff and Give it to my friend um and then it just came the day when there was only one bag left i was like okay i guess this is it um and yeah so that's how that happened um it was horrible it was horrible play. Like, like it was horrible for me it was horrible for my family and it's not something i would ever want to experience again and i don't even know if like if i'd have the strength to do something like that again when you're 19 years old you know it's things um, yeah, yeah, it's a lot easier in many ways. Even though it's harder because you're so young and, and immature and inexperienced, but it's easier because there's sort of yeah. I, I guess you don't know how hard it's going to be. So
1: where did you go to live uh, on, on that sense. night, for instance?
2: Yeah, well, straight to a friend's place. Who's you know, a, who was a, a lifelong school friend. So she, you know, she she knew about you know sort of the family situation. Um, and so then I just went from having quite a sheltered life to just being kind of like oh my god I, I, what do i do with all this freedom but it was freedom in some ways and in other ways not because it, it just came at such a huge cost for myself and and for my for my parents and and, and family and um yeah it was it was it was rough it was a rough time mm.
1: what can we play for that <laughs> life defining well, decision yeah movie?
2: so this song was kind of my theme song for a long time after that um and you'll see why. I don't even really think I need to explain it. It's She's Got Her Ticket by Tracy Chapman.
3: She's got her ticket. I think she's going to use it. I think she's going to fly away. No one should try and stop her. Persuade her with their power. She says that her mind is made. I think she's gonna use it. I think she's gonna fly away.
1: She's Got a Ticket, Tracy Chapman, brought in from the life and times of Ruby Hamad. The writer and thinker is my guest on this show, Out of the Box Today, uh, live on your radio, FBI 94.5, and of course, at your podcast app, wherever you get your podcast, you do so at your convenience. Thank you very much for listening. Ruby, a decade passed uh, where you have almost no contact uh, mm-hmm. with your family, and you get a phone call from your sister. What did she say?
2: My goodness. Um, so, I I was in contact with my sisters throughout that time, and I and I'd seen my my parents twice, right? So, I, um, in that time, um, just there were both big family occasions, which I won't go into. Um. So, it, it, you know, in, in other words, barely at all, um, but I had been in contact with my sister, so it wasn't completely severed. So this phone call was that my father had died, um, and he was in Lebanon at the time, and I was living in Melbourne, and so my sisters are like, you have to come home, and I was like how can I come home? It's like it's been 10 years. I haven't been, you know, there in all that time and they're not going to want me, Like you know, as in the rest of the family's not going to want me. And they're like, no, no, you, you have to. And so the next day or that morning, because that was early, early in the morning, so, yeah, I just booked a, a flight from Melbourne to Sydney and came back and walked in, you know, back into the family in that way. And it was a huge... Shock, like for everybody. Do you remember what you said to your mother? Um, you know, I saw my mom at the airport because she was actually flying out to Lebanon when my when my I came in from Melbourne. Um, and she was shocked, and she's like, you know, why is she here? Who he told her? Um, she wasn't like you know angry or anything. She was just quite a bit. You know, the whole thing was obviously like a bewildering time for, for, for everyone involved. My dad died suddenly um, and so I think she was a bit of kind of, there was a bit of embarrassment and stuff was there as well, like neither of us kind of knew what to say to each other and it was public because I was, you know, was in the airport um, and then she was gone for, you know, about a couple of a week or two there were they were my, my sisters followed her the, the next day, and so then I was kind of left in the house with my brothers and you know with with Muslim and, and, and arab you know, when someone dies for for days there 's a constant stream of visitors and we're, you know so uh, I was kind of left to deal with being immersed not just back in the family and the culture but at one of those really sort of key points in the culture, which is when a death occurs and you know, my, my father was a very, um, like he was very popular and, and, and respected and liked in, in, in that community as well. So so there was a lot of people coming around. And, and so, yeah, I was just kind of like, am I really here? And then I could see the people giving me kind of bit strange looks. Like some people didn't even know who I was, you know, because they just had no idea that there was this other daughter that existed. And um, so it was, it was very... Um, yeah, it was it was quite a, an intense time, um, and but yeah, I, I did sort of reconcile with, with my brothers and my mother and the rest of the family. After that, I was already in, in contact with my sisters, um, so you know it was it was hard because in one sense I'm like never got to do that with my father. Um, so, but what did know? it
1: take for you to reformulate a relationship with your mother?
2: Um, well, it kind of like it, it just it, it it happened after that because I wasn't sure like that you know when I because I was there for for a couple of weeks through the, the the thick of it um and I was like okay so am I not going to talk to them again after this I don't know but um we did like like you know uh, I did you know went back to Melbourne to to go back to to, to film school there but I would go because I would visit Sydney every you know couple of months or a few months anyway to see my sister and and so I was I would still do that um but I would also go visit uh my brothers and my my mum and it took a while to kind of get reaccustomed to that because it was I actually never thought it would happen you know I remember talking to um when I left home and I was talking to counsellors and and I'm just like I don't know if I can do it because if I do it this is it right they'll never talk to me again there's no way they will ever ever talk to me again um so when I did I really thought it was completely 100% final um and kind of makes me sad that I didn't sort of try before my my father died and in a way I I, you know, I guess there was a part of me that I always thought I would like that there was that um you know I did see him one time at, it was my sister's wedding and which was also kind of awkward as well but it, that was you know, at a venue, so I didn't stay for the whole thing, but I did go, and, and you know, he talked to me for a little while, and he was, you know, I could just see the sadness in his eyes, I don't think he still understood, um, but, yeah, and so I guess that after that, there was this part of me that I thought, we'll get it together someday, um, but, yeah, it was, you know, I mean, I was only 28 when he, he died, so I didn't think, he was, like, 61, so I didn't really think that, you know, we had that little
1: time. <coughs> uh, I know you don't reflect on these experiences directly in the book, but I I wonder no. No. whether the lived experience of dislocation and relocation um, in a very specific cultural context mm. uh, has has it affected or informs the way that you think and write about race in any way.
2: Uh, I think I think it definitely has. I mean. Um, you know, I've felt, you know, you've got to come go in two of the songs that I've already played They're, you know, from St. Kilda to King's Cross. She's got her ticket. It's about, it's about movement from here to there. Where do I belong? Who am I? Is things going to be better for me here? Oh no. Like even in the, you know, Paul Kelly song at the end where he says, I'd, I'd give you all of Sydney Harbour for, you know, St. Kilda Beach. So wherever it, it's kind of like, you always feeling like maybe you actually belong somewhere else and I think that um, has informed my work because I think there's a certain there's a certain perspective you get from always feeling like you're on the outside no matter where you are um, there's a certain level of detachment um, and I think you can kind of see something being immersed in it but also a part of you always kind of sort of on the outside watching it looking in and I, and I think that my upbringing gave me that because of being from that community in a place like Australia and but never really never feeling like I 100% belonged with my family but then when I left my family kind of feeling like do I actually belong out here as well um so and I think that I think that definitely comes through um in my work I'm a, I'm a big fan of what Edward Said says about writers and, and intellectuals being you know in kind of this permanent state of exile where they're always unsettled and as a result they're unsettling others because they're ruffling feathers you know by through through their work and and it's a hard thing but it's a good thing
1: let's shake off another record now yeah what do we want to play for that
2: okay so this song is um this one came on the radio so uh you know, when my father died and, and my sisters um, left him um, um, to go to Lebanon and my sis, one of my sisters sort of left her car with me. So I was just like, you know, I turned the car on and then this song came on. Um, it's Fire and Rain by James Taylor. And again, you know, the lyrics in themselves, we'll will we'll we'll, we'll speak to why um, it's kind of uh, stayed with me now and, and, and it's been sort of the theme song of of that time in my life
4: just yesterday morning they let me know you were gone Suzanne the plans they made put an end to you I walked out this morning and I wrote down this song I just can't remember who send it to I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend but I always thought that I'd see you down upon me jesus you got to help me make a stand you just got to see me through another day my body's aching and my time is at hand i won't make it That I thought would never end I've seen lonely times When I could not find a friend But I always thought That I'd see you again Been walking my mind To an easy time my back turned towards the sun Lord knows when the Cold wind blows, it'll turn your head around. Well, as hours of time on a telephone line to talk about things to come, sweet dreams and flying machines in pieces on the ground. Whoa, oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain, I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. Seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you, baby One more time again Thought I'd see you one more time again
0: There's just
4: a few things coming my way
1: American folk classic Fire and Rain by James Taylor and brought into FBI Radio today by writer Ruby Hamad. What happens when racism and sexism collide is the question that she attempts to answer in her new book, White Tears, Brown Scars. And she is, of course, my guest on Out of the Box just for a few moments longer today. So, Ruby, so your book... uh, and, and your writing generally uh, framed around these big ideas of r- how race is constructed, how racism is constructed, intersectionality, mm. identity. And n- Now that we know a bit of your story, I, w- I was wondering if we could bring them down a bit. And I'm particularly interested in this uh, idea of intersectionality because it's kind mm. of uh, a concept that either people don't know about or people think that they know about but then really don't. That's kind of what I discovered when I was researching for this. Yeah. Could you... Give us a bit of a sense of intersectionality, and also w- what it means and how it, it's applied to you.
2: Yeah, and I mean you're right about that. It, it, in a sense, it's one of those words that's used so often that it's almost lost its meaning because it's not kind of used in the spirit or in the way in which the person who came up with it intended. So, so Kimberly Crenshaw's it's just a uh, who, the American black American academic who came up with it. It's it's really it's a metaphor, like it's 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 a way to be able to see. Um, you know things, and and uh, in a way that you hadn't before. So, she so literally chose an intersection because you know at an intersection cars come from this direction, and they come from that direction. Um, so the idea is that you, you know, so, uh, you know, she's focusing on on black women. So they're black and they're women, and that's that is always um, you know intersecting because um, they're not going to experience. Uh, sexism in the same way as as other women do and especially as white women do and then but they're also not going to experience racism in the same way that black men do so um and and how I like to uh, uh, explain it if not i don 't use it that much uh, anymore is it's it's not real it's not the identities uh quote unquote that, that intersect it's the oppressions that intersect so racism and sexism when they meet when they collide at an intersection um you know, what is produced is very unique to those, you know, women of colour um, and in, in her cases, the black women that are experiencing it.
1: So what are you, what are you trying to say about your experience? So my
2: experience is that I'm I'm always going to move through the world, not just as a woman, not just as an Arab, but as an Arab woman. So in, in terms of, of how I've experienced, well, you know, I mean, even my background tells you a little bit in how I experienced it with a mum. What we've just talked about with my family, um, and how things kind of changed for me as I grew older, and, and they didn't for my brother. Um, whereas, with you know, and but then out in the world, in in terms of, um, I, I mean, you know, let's just have a, have a look at, at at how I experience online trolling and abuse. The the things that are, are said to me are along the lines of, um, and excuse my language here. You're a whore for Hezbollah. You're an ISIS slut. Um, you probably have clitoris envy as well as penis envy because, you know, uh, apparently all Muslim women, no matter what their backgrounds are going to have, you know, have had um, fem- female genital mutilation. So these are, these are ways of, of putting me down in a way that's, that's uh, specific to my racial, cultural background as well as being a woman. Right. Um, so that is that is how that's what I mean by like we can't separate that. We can't ever just sort of say I'm a woman here and I'm, I'm an Arab there. So it's, it's always together. And, and women of colour are always going to. That's why I say in my work, we always cop it the most. We get the most disproportionate punishments because we're always being put down for both our race and our gender, not just one or the other.
1: So, what are the material changes that you would would want to see uh, out of your writing, out of, out of I guess the activism that would be associated yeah. associated with it? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, you talk about online trolling. I wonder if we could ever envisage a, wor- a world where there wouldn't be the horrible people in mm-hmm. on the internet that would take whatever they can to the complete extreme.
0: Yeah,
1: what is there something material so, here?
2: Yeah, well you know i think so and, and and i don't you know and i i'm open about this in my book I don't, I don't claim to have all the answers here because we're talking about like we're still excavating the foundations of of this society and and what exactly happened and what i try to do in that book is to give that historical context and to say we're not even looking at history in a way that's conducive to a better society because we're not really looking at um how globalism played out, uh, sorry, how uh, how colonialism played out globally and the role that everyone played in that, including white women um, and including the way in which women of colour uh, uh, were um, colonised in a specific way to ensure that, that European colonialism succeeded. And by, by that I mean the... Um, the abuse of their bodies the degradation and debasement of them um as as women so everywhere you know with indigenous women here with with black women in africa with enslaved women and native um, american women in the americas uh they were debased not always in the same way but there was always a um there was always a degradation involved with their sexuality with their quote-unquote purity, and, and that was that was um, deliberate. That was, you know, to um, – it was like a, 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 a metaphor in a way. It was a stand-in for the debasement and degradation of their entire culture and for why Western society or, or white people were superior and had a right to subjugate everybody else.
1: So is it a revisionist exercise? Do you um, want people to have – I don't know. Have... I
2: wouldn't say it's revisionist because I'm – I, it was more of a synthesis because I've I've gotten I've looked at the history that other historians have already um, right. researched and written about. So I'm not I'm not sort of trying to say no all these all these historians are wrong. Um, look what I found. Um, I'm looking at their work at, and academics. So I'm looking at you know works you know in Australia like Arlene Morton Robinson. Um, I'm looking at, you know, uh, American historians like Stephanie Jones Rogers and, and European historians like Ann Stoller, Australian again, uh, Jack McCulloch, who's, and they've already written about this, but there seems to be this sort of this, this gap or the, between... Um, the, the, the work, the, the academic work um, and, and history and how we talk about it in, in the public sphere, in media and, and in public discourse. And what I would like to see is more or less of that gap, <laughs> if you like. Um, and, yeah, and, and so in terms of the material change, I, I mean, you know, it's twofold. I want, I want us to have an honest discussion about that history and how it still impacts and plays out today. But also this book is about validating the experiences of women of colour because we've been conditioned for so long to believe what we do. It's, it's our fault and we're crazy. And that's something that that so many of the women I spoke to said to me. I, I just kept saying to myself, Ruby, like, what? why am I like this? Why does this keep happening to me? Why do I lose all my friends? What the fuck? You know, why? Uh, I need to change. Because these things keep happening. And, of course, you're going to believe it's you because everyone's pointing at you going, what's wrong with you? Um, and so for women... For them to have that article and then to have this book to say like no, it's not you because look, it's happened to her and her, 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 and also look at the history. This is why it's happening, uh, and and how do we change it? I mean, it, for me, it, it's you know this is this is beyond what what one writer can can say or do. For me, it's it's let's let's get it out from hidden into the open. Um, and see what happens. And for God's sake, let's let's please have an honest discussion about the link, the the links between race and class, because it's not either or, you know, it's not either or. It's not like no, stop talking about that. We have to talk about class. It's, it's you know, racialization was a class created in order to cement you know economic power. Um, and so. That is that's another thing that, we, that that we're not really looking at. I think honestly.
1: Well, with that, Ruby, what can we play to to pull out of this episode? Of-
2: okay, so my last song is uh, my intro to Brave Music when I was a young teenager. So before this song, I was um, I was always putting my sister down because she liked dance music and I I was seriously into the the grunge, the good stuff. You know, uh, looking back now, I, I think more interesting music came out of, out of the UK in the 90s than, than in the US. Um, but, you know, uh, I could talk a, a ramble about this all day and I won't. So this is 3AM Eternal by the KLF.
1: Well, with that, uh, as with every week, an enormous thank you to my producers, Bree Jones and Nicole De Palo for all the work that they do. And Ruby Hamad, thank you very much for being my guest on Out of the Box today.
2: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: This is Radio Freedom.
3: KLF,
0: KLF is gonna rock you up. podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney.
3: Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.